We're going today to return to the book of Job. The title for today is going to be The Necessity of Suffering. I'm going to look in scripture today. I want to try to discover why suffering is necessary in the life of a believer. Why didn't Jesus suffer for us? So why do we have to suffer if we are a follower of Jesus Christ? Certainly, every member of the human race suffers. Atheists suffer. People who believe in false religions suffer. Suffering isn't limited to Christian people. But God will use suffering. He will allow it. He may even at times cause it for eternal purposes in the life of a believer. And we're going to look at that today. Now, last week we laid the groundwork and we saw that the overall governing principle as to God's purpose of suffering in the life of the believer is that we may come into an inward realization of Jesus Christ. That we may have Christ formed in us. That we may be set free to know Christ and walk with Him. Now, all of that, of course, is predicated upon us yielding not to the suffering, not to the circumstances, but to God in the suffering and yielding to God in the circumstances. All of it's predicated upon that. God may allow suffering in my life, but if I refuse to believe Him and turn to Him, if I refuse to open myself to the work of the cross, then God's not going to have that purpose in my life. I will have aborted it. And so that was the overall governing principle that we saw in the book of Job. We saw that God allowed this terrible trial to come upon Job. We saw that it was all unto the end, as shown in chapter 42, that Job, who knew facts about God and taught them, would now see God himself and come into a certain knowledge and understanding of the Lord in a way that he had never imagined could be possible before. This is what God wants to accomplish in the life of believers. Now there are different ways of saying that same thing. God is taking spiritually dead human beings who are born spiritually dead in Adam whose mind are at enmity against God, who have no life and no truth in them. And he is bringing us through his Son, not only over into a new realm, but he is birthing us anew through death to that old and then to resurrection into the new. He's doing that through Christ. How many understand that what we're talking about there is so complete and so utter and so total as far as the very constitution and the makeup of a human being. We may not think of it as that extreme, but it is. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And the two are contrary to one another, and yet God is bringing us from the one into the other through Jesus Christ. And if you get what I'm saying, that doesn't happen through a Bible study. It entails a dramatic upheaval. It entails, as we're going to see, that you lose everything about that old life, especially religiously, and you come into a completely new life in Jesus Christ with a completely new basis, a new mind, a new heart. That's going to require some trauma. It's going to require some suffering. It's really going to require a work of the cross so that the life of Jesus may be fully released and experienced by us. Now that's why suffering is necessary. God can't go one, two, three, presto changeo, and make that all happen in a livable, practical way in us. It does happen all at once in Christ when we're saved. In other words, it's all in us, in Christ. But now it has to be worked out and experienced. And so that's why there is a necessity of suffering. It isn't that God sat down and wrote a law that said, you've got to suffer. 
The necessity of suffering is there because of the very nature of things. Because of how things are. How things became through the sin of Adam and how things are in Christ. We've got to get from the one into the other and it is going to require, by the nature of things, suffering. Now, for today, I'm not going to read a lot out of the book of Job. This is going to be more of a of a groundwork that I'm laying today with regards to the necessity of suffering. I do want to point out, however, in chapter 3 of Job, after all of this trial had come upon Job, losing his possessions, his family, and of course now his health. After all of this happened to him, Job did not, of course, understand. Job could not find God in all of this. Job was asking our question for today. Why has this happened to me? I don't know any place that I've sinned. God hasn't convicted me of sin. I'm certainly not going to fabricate things. I don't know why I have to suffer. So Job had that question before him. And because he did not at this point have an answer, in Job chapter 3, Job begins to lament his very life. He begins to lament the day that he was born. And we read there in verse 2 and 3, he says, Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, There was a man-child conceived. And so, because Job has no purpose in life at this point, no purpose that he understands could be behind this suffering, he begins to fall into a bit of a despair. We don't see him accusing God here any place. I think even all through Job, you don't see that. You have him asking questions. You have him expressing frustration. We do that. God understands that. It's part of what he wants to bring out in us. But Job doesn't accuse God. He simply has a huge, overwhelming question with regards to this horrible, horrible suffering that is upon him. And God's not answering right now. And so we want to get behind the scenes here again. And we want to start to look at why it is necessary to suffer. I frankly think that most of us don't understand the necessity of suffering because we don't understand the nature of things. We don't understand how bad the old creation is. And we don't understand how fantastic and wonderful is the new and how the two are opposed one to another. If we were to ask God why we need to suffer, I think God would like to say to us, because you need to die. You need to die to all of that old life, to, to the life that to you was normal, to the life that was all you ever knew, to the self that was all you ever knew. You need to die to that. How many understand death isn't fun? But, God would also say, but what you will be coming into through that work of the cross is a knowledge of Jesus Christ in whom I have given you all things. This is all under redemption. It's all for our good. It's all deliverance. God delivered Israel out of Egypt. There was a lot of trauma in that. But how many know eventually, through the trauma, they ended up in the promised land. God is faithful. He knows what he's doing. He's not just treading water. He's working an eternal purpose. Now, the first place I want to turn is 1 Peter 2.21. I want to look at what God says about Jesus Christ and his personal individual suffering that he had to face when he was a man on this earth. Now, please understand that there is a difference, although you could call it part of the same whole, there is a difference between the suffering of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and on through his actual suffering on the cross. There's a difference between that and the suffering that he underwent 
simply during the 30 plus years of his life as a man. I think a lot of folks read about the suffering of Jesus Christ in the Bible and they think that the only suffering he ever faced was that of the cross or maybe the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross. We don't understand that from the time he was born until the time he rose from the dead all he did was suffer. He faced the enemy continuously and he certainly faced hatred from not only the Pharisees and scribes during his ministry but he had persecution so to speak from his own family. They just didn't understand him. And I think most of us are familiar with a lot of those scriptures, how at one point they even said that Jesus was crazy. Now this is coming from his loved ones, and so he's human. He can, he can experience hurt over that, even though he didn't sin. It wasn't resentment. But he was human. Now, let's keep that in mind then when we read these passages, that Jesus suffered as a human being all through his life. 1 Peter 2.21, it says there, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And so he suffered, and that suffering is an example for us. Some of these people, such as folks in the word of faith heresy, that teach that it is never God's will for you and I to suffer. That look at scriptures where it actually says that if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to pick up your cross and follow him. They limit that to faith in the fact Jesus died for you. That's how they think you pick up your cross, just by believing Jesus died on his cross. These things are so shallow and nonsensical, it almost is is not even worth answering. You and I, if we want to follow Jesus Christ, are going to be doing it, carrying a cross, and if we don't pick up our cross, we are not following him. Period. There's no confusion here about this issue. Jesus clearly said in Matthew 16, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, meaning let him deny that self-life and self-ownership. Let him deny his right to himself, and let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. And he said what would happen if we did. He said he that would seek to save his life would lose it. But if you pick up that cross and you lose yourself, your life, your throne, your self-ownership for my sake, you will find true life in me. All of it's predicated upon that sentence, if any man would come after me. Now, let's ask the question. If you pick up the cross and you lose your life to Jesus, do you think, and do I think, that that's going to be a picnic? No, it's going to be suffering. It's going to get at the very fabric of our makeup. Not for the purpose of simply exacting suffering, but for the purpose of setting us free. We're to lose that old life. How many understand that if we do, we're going to be free of it? Again, this is all unto redemption. But it's going to be suffering involved. There has to be because of the nature of things. So again, there simply is no way to follow Jesus Christ except it is going to result in you meeting your cross, and many crosses, really. You want to follow Jesus, that is what is going to be laying across your path. And you must pick it up. What is it going to be? Well, whatever brings you into a death to yourself. And that's going to vary depending on the person. But in the end, a cross is the instrument of death. But it is a gateway and a segue to true life and freedom in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to follow Jesus Christ, then I want to follow Jesus Christ. This may not happen immediately because God knows what we can take. But ultimately, we have to follow him by 
entering into the fellowship of his sufferings, as we're going to read in a few moments, and suffering. He suffered as an example that we have to follow. And you'll notice his attitude toward God with regard to his suffering. Verse 22, Who did not sin, neither was God found in his mouth, but who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him, in other words, God, that judges righteously. So again, as I noted a few moments ago, if God allows suffering in your life, the issue there is not so much to try to figure out how to react to suffering or how to react to circumstances. That'll all be included, surely. But you got to get at the core of the thing, and you got to put your faith in God. And you got to rely and depend upon Him and believe Him, despite the suffering and the circumstances. And then as you do that, grace will be given, and truth will be given, and you'll know how to respond in those circumstances to God. One of the best scriptures that illustrates the heart of Jesus in suffering toward His Father and stands as an example for us, is what Jesus said as he hung on the cross. He said to his Father, Into your hands do I commit my spirit. He was hanging on the cross, and he knew that he had no way of raising himself up out of the death he was about to die, but he trusted that God would. That's what God would have us do. Say to him, Father, I have no way to raise anything up out of this. All that I can do is give myself over to the death. And I do that. I don't do it just as a thing to do. I do it into your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Because I know that you are right and you are just and you are faithful. And you will raise up out of this whatever you want. And I know one thing you do want. You want me to experience resurrection life in Christ, and Lord, I look forward to that. That's how God would have us respond in suffering as we hang on whatever our cross happens to be. So what's the goal here in suffering? Lose your life to God. Give yourself to God. You can do that by asking Him to do whatever it takes to get His will in the matter. That's a commitment. That's a starting point from which we should never depart. But then as God does what it takes, continue to pick up that cross and follow Him and believe Him. And you will lose your life. You'll lose it and you'll be set free because your life, your ownership of your life, is what ails you and is what binds you. We don't see that and we don't know that to begin with. We can't even imagine that to begin with, but it is the truth. Unbelief and self-ownership is the sin of the human race. And behind all the suffering, God is setting us free from it. If you and I think that five minutes after we're saved, that we are free from self-ownership, we're deluded. We may have made the commitment to give all of ourselves to Jesus, but that's a commitment that He may do whatever it takes to work out his purpose in our lives, and a big part of working that out will be the cross, the work of the cross and suffering. And so yield to God. We may not know answers any more than Job did, but we can know that God is the answer, and we can trust him. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be scary at times, and we're going to be fearful at times. But all of this if we will yield to God, is under the purpose that we be set free from the very things that bind us. So, Jesus Christ suffered as an example that we should follow in his steps. Not simply because there's some rule that states so, but because of the nature of things. If we want to walk with Christ, we have to do so as those who are crucified with him. With pick up our crosses, he picked up his, that we may come into a greater knowledge of him. Now, I could say a lot more about the sufferings of Jesus Christ personally. But instead, I want to 
begin to talk about what the Bible describes as our fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Now what does that mean? Because really this is the kind of suffering that God wants for the purpose of helping us to grow. To put it in a nutshell, the fellowship that we have in the sufferings of Jesus, or as Jesus said there in Matthew 16, when he said that we need to lose our lives for his sake, that suffering is the suffering that a believer goes through for the purpose of God accomplishing his purpose in us, of forming Christ in us, of manifesting Christ through us. Now, that is what God wants to do in individuals. But how many understand that we are members of a greater body? And what the Bible reveals is that whatever there is of Christ that is formed and manifested in you and I personally as individuals, ultimately everyone in the body of Christ will share in that and fellowship in that and benefit from it. And so just as Paul said that he was suffering to fill up what was lacking of spiritual life at that point in the body of Christ that would benefit the whole, so it is the case with us. Whatever you're going through and whatever it results as far as the measure of Christ that is in you will ultimately be shared by all the members of the body. How many understand that even though it may not seem like it, whatever you're suffering and going through, whatever comes out of that, of the measure of Christ, isn't just for you. It's for the body. You get to experience it, certainly, but the body will as well, and vice versa. Whatever others go through for the sake of Jesus, you will experience. And so, this also is another dimension of the fellowship of his sufferings. How many understand Christ suffered for us? Well, we're suffering for his sake, and for the sake of the body as well. Certainly not on the level that he did. Nothing near to it. But there is that as a principle. And so this is part of the fellowship of his sufferings. It's a part of suffering for his sake. For suffering for his will and his glory in individuals and in the body of Christ as a whole. First Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice in so much as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now what does he mean when his glory shall be revealed? Well, I think in this age, the glory of Christ is being revealed to us and in us through suffering. You lose your life for Christ's sake. You bear about in your body the dying of the Lord Jesus, and the life also of Jesus Christ will be manifest. It'll be manifest to you that you may know him. To you that he be revealed in you, that you come into an inward realization of him. But at the same time, if that's happening, his glory, his life, is also going to be made manifest through you to others as a living witness of the risen Christ. Believers are supposed to be living evidence that Christ has risen. Not by words we speak so much. Not by saying it, that Christ has risen. We can do that. But we're to be living epistles, living evidence by virtue of the fact that He is in us. And that His life, resurrection life, is living in us. And manifested through us. That's what it means, that the glory shall be revealed. And then, of course, the fullness of that will be when Jesus Christ returns. And it's all released, unhindered by the flesh, for the eternal ages. We read that phrase in Colossians 1.27, which I have said is the best one-sentence definition of Christianity. It says in there, Christ in you the hope of glory. Notice that. Christ in you. That's now. Right now, if you're a believer, Christ dwells in you. 
but also notice the word hope that points toward something that has not yet happened. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, when Christ comes back, you and I will still be joined to the Lord in one spirit with him. Christ will still be in us and us in him. But it will no longer, when Christ comes back, merely be the hope of glory. It will be the realization of his glory. How many know we don't have any glory of our own? Any glory we experience is that which is of him that is to be revealed in us and released in and through us. And so the fellowship or the partaker with Christ of his sufferings, right here we see, ties directly into God's desire to reveal the very glory of the Son of God in his people. Philippians 1.29 It says there, For unto you it is given, on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, I like that phrase, believe on him, it shows a rest upon, a reliance on, and a dependence upon Jesus. So it's given unto us as believers not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Jesus Christ wants a body. He wants a people in whom and through whom he can manifest himself and do his work, not just for here, but throughout the eternal ages. But in order for that to happen, Christ has to clean the room, weed the garden, make room for himself in us. And that means our self, our agenda, and our purposes have got to go. And so, this is what the purpose is for suffering. That we may know him, see him, and manifest him. Now, I hope that by seeing this, we can begin to get a little bit of an idea as to why suffering is necessary. Think about what God starts with in working with a human being. He starts with a human being in whom there is no light, there is no life. Spiritually dead in every way. No contact, no affinity for God. In fact, we're told that the carnal mind, which we all have, is an enmity against God. We may not believe that about ourselves if we tend to be a religious person, but it is nevertheless true. We have an aversion against God. Our mind is against Him. We just need the right buttons to be pushed to bring it all out. We're going to find out that as well. So, God has a nothing there to work with that he can find in a human being. Now God's going to take a creature like that, dead in sin, born in Adam, and by the time he is done, he is going to manifest his Son in us and through us. What a miracle! And what an incredible purpose of God. But look what is necessary. Something has to deal with this flesh. Something has to deal with that carnal mind. Yes, in all the negative ways that we need to be dealt with, convicted of sin, convicted of unbelief, all that sort of thing. But in a positive way, to bring us into an inward knowledge of Jesus Christ. God has to do that through his work. We saw in the book of Job that even though Job was a good and upright man who hated evil and loved God, who had taught others about God, and who God commended. In fact, God even said all the trials that came upon Job were without cause. Even though that was the case about Job, Nevertheless, God opened the hedge around him, allowed Satan to have access, and Job suffered greatly. That is what was necessary to bring Job to the place 
we might even say to break Job down, to rip Job apart, to get at what made Job tick as a human being. All of that had to be dismantled and brought to a total and complete collapse. Really, all of it had to be shown for the lie that it is. And then Job was able to say, I now see that I was deceived. I thought I knew. I thought I understood. But I didn't, Lord, because now I see you. And I repent in dust and ashes. In a nutshell, that's what God is doing in our lives as well. Most of us don't have any idea as to the incredible contrast between the old creation and the new. That contrast is simply death versus life. It's that much of a contrast. We read about that contrast in the Bible. Jesus, for example, said, I am from above. You are from below. He said, that's why you don't have a clue as to what I'm all about or even as to being able to understand my teaching. We read in 1 Corinthians 2, for example, that the natural man cannot receive the things of God. In fact, the things of God are folly to natural man. There simply is no compatibility between flesh and spirit. That's why the one must die before the other can be raised. And that's why suffering is necessary. It's the nature of things again. There simply is no other way for, for you and I who are born in Adam to come over, be born anew, and come into an inner knowledge of Jesus Christ and walk with God. It's trauma. It's birth pangs. It's death unto life. And this is why we go through what we go through. It's why we need to suffer if we're going to walk with Jesus Christ. Someone once compared life in Christ as a seed that we receive from above that is planted in our earthly nature. He's joined us in spirit, but I think that this is a good example. So Christ comes to dwell in us, just like a seed begins in the earth. But then Christ begins through the work of the cross to be released and to emerge through that earthly to the point where he can be seen and he can bear fruit. That takes suffering. That takes revolutionary change. How many see in that that we get all of Christ when we're born again? He's all in there. He's in that seed just as an entire apple orchard can be said to be within a seed at the start. But as Christ begins to break forth through God's work of the cross and through all these things in life, His glory and His life will begin to govern. 1 Peter chapter 4. I don't often hear this scripture mentioned in Christian teaching, but it is quite fundamental, especially with regards as to why suffering is necessary. 1 Peter 4 says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now that word, their mind, doesn't simply mean brains. It speaks of an attitude toward God, a faith, an attitude of surrender to God. In other words, whatever it takes, Lord, have your way with me. I want to lose my life. This is what Peter is getting at. And so he says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same heart attitude toward God as Christ had, in other words. Now why? For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Note that. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now again, why? Why has a person, and again, we have to remember, 
He's talking about someone that has yielded to God in this suffering. He's talking about someone who has picked up the cross, not somebody who has refused to. You can suffer until you're blue in the face religiously and never get anywhere. This is talking about somebody who is suffering in faith, yielded to God. And we're going to kick and scream along the way. I'm talking about the overall, our heart's attitude and commitment of allowing God to do whatever it takes. He is saying that if you suffer in the flesh in that spirit of surrender, it's going to result more and more in a cessation of sin. Now, why is that the case? Because the sin of the human race, it's really the sin that is the root of all other sin, is self-ownership. It's unbelief. And if you suffer in God's will and yield to Him, you are going to be relinquishing your self-ownership. That's what all this is unto. So if the sin of the human race is self-ownership and independence from God, and if you suffer according to God's will and yield to Him, you lose that self-ownership, then you will cease from living from out of self-ownership. You'll cease from that sin, and you're going to find out that if you cease from that sin, a lot of the other sins are going to begin to lose their power because they're all rooted in that one sin of self-ownership. I often put it this way. Jesus talked about losing your life to find true life in Him. Well, every sin you would want to name is rooted in that life that Jesus says we need to lose. We make the mistake of trying to overcome specific sins, of developing programs that will work upon this sin or work upon that sin, 12-step programs and all this kind of stuff. We go to people and ask them to lay hands on us to cast out a sin or a generational curse, that all this nonsense people have come up with. And we're never going to get free. Oh, we can develop different habits. You don't even need Jesus to do that. The world's filled with self-help programs, psychiatrists and the like, group therapy. People use that today in churches and think it's God. It isn't God. The only way to get free of the power of any specific sin over you is you got to go back to losing the life in the cross in which that sin is rooted. You're addicted to alcohol that's rooted in the life you got to lose. You're addicted to something else that's rooted in your possession of yourself. It's rooted in the fact that you have a self-life that has not been fully surrendered. Come to the cross and tell Jesus to do what it takes, whatever it takes, to make this real in your life, to do a work of the cross in your life, to bring you into a total loss of that self-life. It'll take time and suffering. It's a lifetime. But as you lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ, under that work of the cross, what is going to happen is that these sins that you can't get free of, more and more, will not find anything in you in which to root themselves. Sin won't have a place in you if you've lost the life in which they can find a place. And of course, it isn't just that you're also going to learn to walk with Jesus Christ in His life. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, live in Christ, and the rest of this stuff will fall by the wayside. And this is what suffering is going to produce. Now, if you look at this in a little more specific way, you can see how that's the case for one again who is seeking God in suffering. What happens when suffering comes upon you? Immediately, if you have faith and you want the will of God, you seek God. You begin to cry out to Him. You begin to ask Him for help. And if we begin to seek God, you know what's going to happen? 
we're going to find him. And what we're going to find is that he's going to bring us to this surrender, to this place where we see we need to lose our life. He's not going to bring us to any other place. That's why Jesus said, if any man would follow me, you seek God in the midst of a trial. He's going to bring you to the cross. To the cross of Jesus Christ, he's going to tell you you need to pick up your cross and surrender to him in this suffering. And if you do, you're going to lose that life. And the power of that life will become less and less active in you because you're going to be transitioning over into the power of his resurrection life. Now, this is why God has to bring suffering into our lives. I guess in a very shallow way of saying it, we might say he's got to get our attention. God has to use suffering to show us how weak we are, to show us there's nothing in ourselves, there's nothing in there that we can use as a resource. And he's got to use suffering to bring out all of the garbage that's in there, to bring us to repentance to show us we have been living in unbelief the way he did Job, to show us how utterly and completely in the dark we have been about God. There's another passage here in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He's talking about suffering. He says, with regarding the salvation of Jesus, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold trials. And he says in verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being more precious than the trial of gold that is tried by fire, even though it is perishable, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, he's really drawing an, an analogy here. He is saying when gold is mined, it is impure. It's impure to begin with, taken right out of the ground, isn't it? But it's tried by fire. Really, it's purified by fire, isn't it? They put gold ore through a trial by fire, and what happens is that all of the impurities come to the surface. They're there on the top, and then they're skimmed off, and what's left is a more pure gold. This is what God's doing with us. He puts us in a fiery trial, more precious than a fiery trial of gold. And as he does, all the garbage comes to the top, comes to the surface. All of our unbelief, all of our anger and enmity against God, all of the things that are in our flesh and natural man that hinder us, that are not compatible with Jesus Christ, all of it is brought out and brought to the surface. And despite the fact that, yes, it is sin, and despite the fact that it is ugly, how many see God wants it brought to the surface? Because he wants us to see it. And he wants us to confess it. So that we can then discard it. And come over and begin walking in truth. And begin walking in the life of Jesus instead of our old life. And of course the church has always been filled with people who would provide us with laws and principles to follow, intended to keep our sin and unbelief from coming to the surface. God wants to bring it all out to set us free. These folks provide laws intended to keep it in. And what you end up with, if you go along the way that these people would suggest, you end up with a whole bunch of self-righteous people that are barely conscious of any sin because they've managed to find a way to keep it under wraps. God doesn't do that. God is eternal light and truth. You stand in the light of God through Jesus Christ. You're going to be exposed for all that you are. Thank God. Because the next step is that you confess 
and you are no longer deceived. You are free. And now you can walk in His life. How many understand that it takes a work of God just to show us how ugly and wicked our flesh is before we will actually say, My dear Lord, how I want to be free of that, do whatever it takes to set me free. And then, because we have seen the truth about the flesh, then we gladly lose it to Jesus. We gladly embrace him as our life. God wants voluntary faith and love on these matters, but it'll never be voluntary unless he shows us the truth. If he shows us the truth of our lostness and depravity and ugliness, and if we see that truth and embrace it, then it'll be voluntary. And it doesn't happen any other way. And then we will embrace Christ. And so the trial of our faith is likened to a trial of gold in fire. And so what we see in that is that in a trial of faith, God is actually purifying our faith. Purifying our faith in Christ. So that we can walk with him have him formed in us and revealed in and through us. And to finish out 1 Peter 4, For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter goes on to say that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. If you continue to live in the flesh to the lusts of men, you are owning yourself. That's what that means. You're walking and being governed by your own desires and will. So suffering in the flesh, if you respond by faith and surrender to God, will ultimately be used by God to set you free from the lusts of the flesh, from self-ownership, that you and I can walk and be in the will of God. Now one other one, I want to touch on 2 Corinthians 4. I mentioned it earlier. Paul there is talking about the suffering that we endure as this treasure who is Christ lives in us in this earthen vessel. And he says it's all under the purpose, verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So how many see that as we yield to God and suffering is necessary to push us there? As we yield to God and bear about the cross, the dying of the Lord Jesus, in our flesh, in our body, in our natural man, it has a purpose that the life also of Jesus might be revealed and manifested to us. We'll know him, but also in us and then ultimately through us as his witnesses. Again, this is God's purpose that he is accomplishing in this age. Now, as we read there in Job 3, if we don't understand this, and a tremendous trial comes upon us, we are not going to understand. Thank God he has given us a Bible to explain these things, and has revealed these things to us through the Spirit of God. But often, even then, we don't get it. We don't understand how this could be happening to us. We certainly, until God shows us our great need, and until God shows us the absolute depravity and emptiness of our heart without Christ, until he shows us that, we may be perplexed as to why God would allow this to happen to us. We may have this idea that we're really a good Christian, and we shouldn't have to suffer, because as Job thought, we may think, we've arrived and that we're pretty mature. And yet all of this stuff comes down upon us. And we as Job may ask, why God? 
I think one of the keys here is to get a glimpse of what I referred to earlier as the nature of things, as to the complete contrast between the old creation in Adam and the new creation in Christ Jesus. We need to see just how abnormal the Adam race has become. If we would turn back to Genesis, I'm going to do that real quick and just look at two scriptures. We would read in Genesis 2.25, for example, a description of what God would say is the normal man. It says there, and the man and woman were both naked, but were not ashamed. That's a description of Adam and Eve before the sin. It's a description of normal in the eyes of God as it pertains to humanity. Naked but not ashamed. What does that mean? It means completely without resource in yourself. You have nothing. You're bankrupt. You're naked. You can't find in yourself life, light, truth, or provision, or the means of provision for anything. That's true nakedness. Put the physical nakedness at this point aside. No, this is a spiritual and moral nakedness. They had nothing. And guess what? God created them to have nothing. God created them naked. He created them dependent and reliant upon them. How many understand that man is a dependent creature? That's why even without God, we're going to be dependent on something. Thus, addiction to something. Thus, a substitute for God that we rely on. No, God made man naked. And he said it was good. That's normal for us to be naked in the eyes of God. Why? Because God also made man to be fully dependent upon God. They were naked, but they were not ashamed because their life was joined to the Lord. They were one in spirit with him. They were completed, if I can put it that way, by God, filled up with his life. If you have no resource in yourself, nothing in yourself, but you are joined to the Lord and all is in him, how many understand you might be naked, but... It's not going to be a problem. There's not going to be any shame or sense of lack. You're going to be naked and unashamed. This was man as God originally designed him. It was man in his relationship with God. God said it was good, and God would say, This is normal to me. Now, after the sin... It states clearly that they saw they were naked and were afraid. In other words, before the sin they were naked and unashamed. After the sin, they were still naked, but now ashamed. Now, what changed? Not the nakedness. They were naked before the sin and after. What changed is that they had walked away from God. And so they were now ashamed, in fact, tormented by their nakedness, because they no longer were one with God. Now, God would call that abnormal. In fact, they were so abnormal and so tormented by their lack that they tried to compensate for it and create a man-made device. Here in Genesis 3, it's fig leaves. Fig leaves are whatever man uses to cover his nakedness to cover his deficiency, to try to fill in the void that is left by God. It's a substitute, in other words, that man creates for Jesus Christ because he alone is to be our life now. Some people use all kinds of addictions. All versions of the flesh are substitutes. A lot of people use self-righteousness to substitute for Christ. But that's abnormal. Now, the point I'm getting at is this. When you look around in this world, when you look at your friends, even, I might say, if you look at people at church, 
In fact, we don't even need to go that far. We can even look in the mirror. When you and I do all of that, we tend to think that what we're looking at is normal. This world, the way it's run, the way people act, the way people are religiously in church, even our own reactions. We will admit that we're all sinners, that the world is messed up, that the church is in error. We'll say all of that, sure, but most of us have this idea that the structure of it, the basic gist of it is normal, but it's just a little bit messed up because of sin. Most of us have not seen that what we're talking about there and what we're looking at is an absolutely fallen, dead creation from start to finish, and in God's eyes, absolutely abnormal. God didn't create human beings the way that we are in this world. He didn't even really create Christians the way they are. We are created in Christ Jesus, new creations, but most of us, what we see when we look at each other, and the way that we know each other is according to the flesh. Funny how Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5, Henceforth we know no man after the flesh. He's getting at something there. We're to know each other in Christ. But we don't tend to do that. But we tend, I think, without saying the words, without putting it into words or thought, we tend to view most of what we see and interact in today as being normal, although a little off the track maybe because of sin and error. God says none of it's normal, it's totally abnormal. Now this creates a problem and it really is the reason why very often we don't understand when tragedy happens, when it's given to us to suffer. Because you see what God is doing is he is taking an absolutely abnormal creation and situation, and he is trying to expose that and bring us into the normal. In fact, he's taking that abnormal and dead old creation, and he's doing away with it completely through the cross of Jesus Christ. But if we don't understand that, and God does begin to put the person we are under the cross, we're going to wonder why, because we're not so bad. We have some sin here and there. We need to grow. We all admit that. But if we don't understand the true nature of things and how it all must go, then we may accuse God of being unfair. We may live in confusion when tragedy or suffering comes. But God would say to us, No, I'm trying to set you free from a realm of death. I'm trying to set you free from a dead creation. I'm trying to set you free from what is absolutely abnormal. But to us, it's not abnormal to begin with, is it? Human beings all look alike, act alike, sound alike, behave alike. It's all this abnormal condition of being naked and ashamed. It's all normal to us, and so it's all we're used to. If God begins to come into that and disrupt it, if he comes into what we think is normal and begins to disrupt it, we're going to think that there's something wrong. We may even think that what God is doing is abnormal. Can we see how turned upside down everything is in human thinking? We live in abnormality. God wants to bring us into the normal, but when he does, because we think we're already in the normal, we'll think what God is doing is abnormal. How crazy and upside down could it get any more than it is? But because our perspective is jaded, because the abnormal fallen creation, our own nature, is all that we have ever known, when God begins to come in and bring a work of the cross to absolutely put the whole thing to death, he intends to salvage nothing out of it. Absolutely nothing. God is not salvaging anything out of the old creation or that old man. He wants to set us free through that work in the cross and bring us into the new. And when God begins to do that, 
initially at least, if we don't know him, we're going to think there's something wrong when in fact everything may be right. God is keeping his promise to guide us into all truth. He's keeping his promise to deliver us and in doing so setting us free. And so I'm going to get back to Job here. Job lamented the day that he was born. He began to sense and feel in his own humanity that something was wrong, that he was losing something that was normal and right and good. And God would begin to show him, no, Job, I'm just setting you free from your blindness, from what is abnormal, from flesh, from error. And I'm bringing you into a true revelation of myself. So why is suffering necessary? It's necessary because of the nature of things because of the nature of the old into which we're all born, and because of the nature of the new into which we can be reborn in Jesus Christ. We start dead in sin. We start, even after we're saved, totally ignorant of God. And worse, filled with errors about Him, filled with errors about our own condition. Suffering is necessary so that we might no longer trust in ourselves, so that we might be exposed as the creatures that we really are and shown the truth that unless Christ dwells in us, we are reprobate. God's guiding us into the truth. This is how he does it. He uses suffering that we may lose our lives and find Christ. That's why suffering is necessary and that's the great thing that will be accomplished if we yield to God in it.